Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning. Um, welcome to the Top of the Gherkins, this um, editorial intelligence event. Um, I'm Robert Phillips. I'm the CEO of Edelman. Uh, normally, Julia would be um, chairing this event, but as she's on the panel, uh, she's asked me to step in. Uh, a couple of housekeeping uh, requests. First of all, obviously, if all mobile devices could be switched to silent, um, and it is worth saying that this is not a Chatham House Rules event. We are on the record, and uh, there are people tweeting. Uh, and the hashtag for those tweeters is uh, Truth Lies. Um, I'm also um, reliably informed that this is the most acoustically challenging building in the world, um, given the fact that we're in one large glass dome. So I hope that, uh, I hope that people can hear uh, towards the back. Um, a quick run-through of the format. Um, it's going to be hopefully conversational, possibly confrontational. Who knows? Um, there are going to be no major presentations or grandstanding. If grandstanding takes place, I shall happily intervene. Um, uh, and generally a discussion. Uh, polite interruptions from the panel are fine. Aggressive interruptions, less so. Um, and uh, I've got a few little prompt cards here in case the conversation gets stuck, but I suspect that it probably won't. Um, obviously, in the uh, four or five years since uh, Julia first published or published the first edition of um, Where the Truth Lies, the, the landscape in which we all operate has changed um, quite fundamentally. Uh, and not just the relationship between the media and citizens, but also the relationship between journalism and the industry known as uh, public relations. In those five years, social media has become mainstream. Transparency has become the default setting of everything we do. We've seen the rise of owned media channels, the reshaping of content. Uh, journalism, ever on the increase, the 24-7 news agenda. Um, and obviously scandals still persist uh, in life, both in politics and in the tabloid world. And perversely, or maybe not perversely, the media is less trusted than ever before. Um, and I think that it's appropriate that we sit here at the top of the gherkin in the heart of the city uh, when our own Edelman Trust Barometer data will tell you that media sits alongside bankers as the least um, trusted profession uh, in the country today. So, some brief introductions uh, to the panel in no particular order. Um, where are they? George Brock, uh, Professor and Head of Journalism at City University, former writer on The Times and The Observer, and whose georgebrock.net is a great blog on journalism. Baroness Buscombe, Peter Buscombe on my right, uh, Chairman of the Press Complaints Commission, Barrister, Company Director, previously Chief Executive of the Advertising Association, and also previously a shadow minister in the Lords. Ian Dale, uh, two to my left. Um, not often that um, uh, Ian sits on the left of me. Um, political blogger, uh, conservative commentator, um, equally famous as a broadcaster now with his uh, LBC show, publisher, author, and obviously West Ham fan till he dies. Um, Sue Mathias, far right, editor of the uh, Financial Times magazine, and also chair of Women in Journalism and a former deputy editor of The New Statesman. Guido Fawkes, uh, also known as uh, Paul Staines, um, who asked to be described as someone who is very pleased to have personally reduced the budget deficit by £30,000 recently by cutting superfluous personnel at the Foreign Office. 
Um, he also blogs, obviously, on orderorder.com. Um, John Ware, uh, on the far left, investigative journalist, BBC Panorama uh, guru, and described by my colleague Richard Sandbrook to me last night as being absolutely in a class of one. Uh, obviously, most renowned for his work uh, in Northern Ireland in tracking down those responsible for the Omar bombings and also for unearthing the collusion between the military intelligence special branch and loyalist paramilitaries. And then last, but by no means least, uh, Julia Hobsbawm, the author of Where Truth Lies and the chief executive of Editorial Intelligence, who describes herself as Rosa Luxemburg meets Ab Fab. Um, and uh, was described actually by a, mutual, by a mutual friend, Simon Sharma, as a 21st century salonniere. So here we are in a 21st century salon, I suppose, um, and we're here to discuss where the truth lies in media, communications um, and business today. So um, I'm going to uh, just identify the first two people I'm going to, to ask the comment, which is Julia and, and uh, Peter, and then we'll just... Two minutes' notice I gave them on that. Um, and uh, then we'll just um, take it from there. So the first question to Julia, really, is, um, is very simple. You've written a book, Where the Truth Lies. Does the truth ever lie? Well, it's not as absolute as you would think. I mean, it's interesting. I was rereading in preparation for today the Bernard Williams book on truth and truthfulness, in which he describes the definition of truthfulness as a combination of accuracy and sincerity. But that takes as a given that there is such an absolute thing as truth. Now, I think there are absolute truths. I would take it as an absolute truth that that bloke in MI6 did not padlock himself into a suitcase and auto-asphyxiate, even though we're being told absolutely that he did. So I think there are truths that we know and lies that we know but increasingly, because of the dimension at which speed moves truths and half-truths and untruths and rumours around these days, it's the non-absolute truth that interests me, and particularly the nuanced truth that, if it's out of context, can, can radically alter. So, for example, I think that the climate change lobby has suffered catastrophically from not being able to correctly identify what is an absolute truth and what is a risk. And the head of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is still, you know, swinging precariously in his job. Um, so that's kind of what interests me, is um, something that the, uh, the satirists, of course, have a field day with, and Stephen Colbert memorably coined the phrase truthiness. And of course, you know, almost all of politics has got a touch of the truthiness about it. So I'm interested in that moral space, and the answer to your question is, yeah, but, no, but. Yeah, but, no, but. Um, are we bothered? Um, so, uh, Peter Buscom, is um, if yeah, but, no, but, is the primary remit of the PCC bothered with truth? Yes. <clears throat> truth goes to the heart of what we do at the PCC. Uh, clause one of our code is actually about all about accuracy, but also <clears throat> you've asked me to comment on morality, which is also um, an integral part of what we do. Truth uh, is, of course, sometimes distorted, um, and that is why we believe it's right to have a commission of 17 people 
uh, rather than a judge on his own or her own deciding, uh, sometimes with great debate, whether or not something at the end of the day is accurate or not, having worked hard to mediate with both um, the editor and the complainant or third party, where it's a question of accuracy, we take complaints from anyone because we believe fundamentally that the credibility of the PCC uh, relies to a large extent on our ability to seek the truth and uphold what we believe um, is, is right in that sense. And one of the merits of our self-regulatory system is that it's flexible. It has to be in this world which Julia has already referred to, a fast-moving technology where the law markets, uh, indeed politics itself, can barely keep up with the speed of technology. So we have to be able to respond to change, cultural change, where we're butting up against the question of whether something is culturally or morally acceptable or not such that something that might have been acceptable uh, five years ago may well not be acceptable now, and conversely, five years from now. So we're constantly pushing up against boundaries, but we're very much bottom-up in the sense that we look to our experience, our case law, to decide where the boundaries of truth lie. Um, it's a constant uh, challenge for us, and we probably don't always get it right. But at the end of the day, I would say as a lawyer, you rarely go into a, a, a court of law uh, and come out feeling good, even if you have, you've won your case and you've got what you believe, your rights in terms of what is truth. So, so can I just quickly say also, I think what's so interesting about Julia's book, Where Truth Lies, is this very difficult dilemma which we deal with all the time, which is this almost triangular situation between uh, politics, the media, um, and PR. And if you don't have trust in politics, are you going to trust in the media and PR? Uh, and I think we're all questioning on a daily basis everything we read, everything we see, and the internet has added to that sort of uh, quite complex mix. I'd like to come to, to George, um, but just for I should say we will open this up to questions um, after everyone's had a, an initial chat and we want to start thinking about what those questions might be. We have roving mics, um, I hope. We do? We do. We have one roving mic. Um, George, um, to, to Peter's point, has the, the changing shape of technology changed the shape of truth as told by the media, do you think, over the past five years? I think it's shifted the context in which it occurs one sentence of history, when people started something called journalism, reliable information was in very short supply. Now what we have is an enormous oversupply. We're drowning in information. The geeks at Google say that between the beginning of time and 2003, humanity produced five exabytes. An exabyte is a massive unit of, of data or information. They calculate that the world is now producing five exabytes of data every two days. That measures the kind of increase. So that changes the context in which, journalism, in which journalism occurs. And there's a very, very good phrase. There's lots of good stuff in Where Truth Lies, but there's a very good phrase in it which says that journalism needs an evolutionary boost because what it needs to do is to read it, redefine a bit and rediscover what it does in a world in which there are very, very, very large quantities of information of radically differing varieties of reliability. Of course, journalism should aim to be at the reliable end of that scale. 
I was um, just thinking, as you said, because I had a question I was going to ask um, Paul Guido um, later, but I might ask him now. Um, because on, on that question of variety of information, um, Guido, what, what kind of media do we have when, in the words of your own blog, tittle-tattle, gossip and rumours form the basis of the truth that you publish? Profitable media. <laughs> uh, people want that kind of stuff and I'm there to supply it. It's a market requirement. So I don't have a problem with it being tittle-tattle. It's not Reuters. You know, there's a level of trust you can have in media. If it says rumour and tittle-tattle at the top, you know that this isn't guaranteed 100% absolute truth. But we do our best, and sometimes we make mistakes in the pursuit of truth. Although, of course, and maybe bring Ian in, in on this, um, it's not so much what you publish with the disclaimer, the, the openness of tittle-tattle, rumour and gossip. It's how it then gets reported on and becomes an established truth. I think we've got a media now where everybody feeds off each other, and particularly the mainstream media is feeding off the internet. And um, I mean, Paul and I had a bit of a disagreement over the William Hague story, where he published this rumour and gave the, me the mainstream media the excuse to report actually, what was I, I, just instant tittle-tattle and gossip. I published the facts that they had shared a bedroom. No, you... That you, you a fact. You not, did, not a rumour, that's a fact. You insinuated that's a lot more truth. than that. And that's why it became a story. And the fact that then William Hague made, or the Foreign Office made a short statement afterwards um, seeking to clarify what had happened then gave the media the chance to do what they did and then report it as a massive story. Can I just take up something that Peter said? Peter said because I think that um, the Press Complaints Commission does have an important role here, but it doesn't distinguish between the truth and fair comment. Oh, yes, we do. We, well, we had the incident recently of Claire Balding complaining about being called a dyke on a bike by A.A. Gill. That was exactly the same kind of complaint that I put in when I was described as something similar by the it's Daily not, Mail. She not. won it, I didn't. No, so I'm it's an sorry. interpretation sorry, of the truth. So just give Peter the right of reply. Well, yeah, I think that's really important because, Ian, you know, the, the difference was um, that we decided after a great deal of discussion that yours was not a, we weren't discriminating against you. We're very clear that uh, where something is pejorative, again, one particular individual, um, that it's a pejorative synonym, uh, then we're clear that it's discriminatory. We did not believe that the statement that was made about you was, was that. Uh, in contrast, we felt very strongly that actually what was said about Claire Balding, a dyke on a bike, was pejorative. Um, and was discriminatory, and that's why it was upheld. But the comment about you, I'm afraid to say, we felt on a number of grounds was not discriminatory. It was fact. Um, oh. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, really? Well, well, I'm glad to see the PCC is adopting the Daily Mail agenda. Um, no, 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 no. no. I, I think we might come back to this, and you certainly have a coffee, <laughs> one suspects. Um, uh, I'd like to bring in, in, in Sue and John, uh, as sort of two seasoned journalists, about this this notion of facts and sourcing, and particularly double sourcing, or lack of double sourcing in a, in a, in a rolling news agenda. But, but John, just a question, as an investigative reporter, um, when you are in pursuit of a story, and, and you're clearly trying to establish a certain narrative, and I think this, <coughs> this plays to some of the points that Ian was digging at, can the truth maybe become a little flexible to fit the narrative that you're trying to, to fit? Um, so maybe I'd like to comment on that, and then ask Sue to comment as well. Mm. That's a very good question. Um, it certainly shouldn't. Uh, the point about uh, journalism 
Uh, incidentally, I don't really distinguish between investigative journalism and journalism. It's all, uh, it's just a question of degree of uh, research and uh, uh, thoroughness. But um, the key to truth, non-absolute, tr well, the key to factual truths, that is to say, you know, black is black, white is white, um, is a uh, sort of restless curiosity about um, the way the world uh, actually is rather than the way you want it to be. And there is a great temptation uh, because journalists have strong views uh, like everybody else. Uh, and uh, there is a temptation if you're pursuing um, a someone or a something uh, to hope that you can make the case for your own personal point of view. The real test is whether when one you, once you've assembled all the facts and the arguments, they can withstand scrutiny. And um, so you have to be scrupulous. I mean, you, you know, um, but, but the, key, the key to getting to the truth whatever that is, 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 as I say, curiosity. You've got, to, you've got to really want to make the case, see if you can make a case for the way the world is rather than the way it is, actually is rather than the way you want it to be. Yeah. Um, Sue. Um, well, journalists may tell the truth, or they may not. Um, but the really question, I think the more important question is, is whether they're telling the truth. Is the public actually going to trust them or not? Levels of trust in journalism have never been lower. And in fact, there was a YouGov poll only last week, which produced some quite shocking results, and actually I think quite interesting in this context, because trust in journalism has plummeted to an all-time low. And interestingly, the upmarket, quote, upmarket papers, um, trust levels were down 24 points to 41%. And uh, interestingly, I just, I just thought, well, this was the year in which the Telegraph broke the MP's expenses story. This was a case, you know, a grand case of journalism telling the truth and exposing it to the public. Public's response, you know, is self-evident from, you know, from, from that survey. They just don't trust us. And how are we going to rebuild that trust? I hope we can discuss Julia. that. Well, just a point, I mean, we often talk about journalism as if it's a sort of pure, linear thing, the words. And, of course, it's the wrapping, the context, the pictures, the sub-editing that make the story. And often that's where the truth does begin to lie. That's often the distortion. Um, I was memorably monstered by a Sunday newspaper when... Um, editorial intelligence first began and there was huge concern about PR journalism, you know, is one going to be, uh, you know, subverting the other. <coughs> and a young, eager, keen journalism graduate interviewed me for a Sunday broadsheet in the middle of the brouhaha, quite, quite substantial brouhaha, and I gave him an interview which he accurately reported. Every single quote was accurate and fair and contextual. The headline and the subheadline on page three was totally at odds with the piece. 
And I had, you know, lots of people phoning me up going, God, sorry, you're finished, you know, that headline, what a nightmare. And I phoned the editor and I said, look, I'm not going to go to the PCC. I'm not going to throw my toys out of the pram. It is your right as free journalists to be wrong. But why didn't you go the whole hog and just make the quotes up? Because actually, that's what you've done. And of course, he did what all editors do under those conditions, which is to blame the sub-editor. But the point is, <laughs> that's where the truth lies, is where the buck gets passed and the ownership. And at least with Guido's blog, which I'm a defender of, even though I know it causes great offense and complexity, is he stands up and is counted on what he is doing. And that's very important. Yeah, we've got quite a few um, requests on, on the panel here, which you may not be able to see at the back. So, George, Peter, it, sorry, I'm poking Guido's eyes out. George, Peter, and then Ian. I just very swiftly wanted to pick up uh, Sue's point about trust. I think one of the contributions to the fall in trust is that uh, journalism has advanced almost too big a case for itself. Uh, people say, you know, you failed to foresee, the media failed to foresee the financial crash, failed to spot that Saddam Hussein didn't have weapons of mass destruction and so on. These are partly a result of inflated claims for journalism. There are some things, I mean, never mind the weapons of mass destruction for a second, you know, there were journalists who pointed out actually that there were great financial dangers. They just weren't being listened to and they were in a minority. I think there will be situations, there will always be situations in which the media is not necessarily going to be able to foretell the future with perfect accuracy. I think there's a premise here that, um people on the panel have that the fact that the public doesn't trust journalists, doesn't trust journalism, is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, because they shouldn't trust journalism, because most journalism's crap. Well, I, I wouldn't go as far as that, but I would say that um, I don't think there's anything new about people's trust in journalism being rather low. Back in the 19th century, 18th century, it was, it was not much different, actually. People never really trusted, but they still went out and bought newspapers, and people still watch news, they still are on the blogs and everything else, and I think people... I don't think we should underestimate the common sense of people to be able to sift in their own minds uh, through choice, through understanding of, of blogs, whether, and, and the, whether it's the tabloids, the red tops, whatever they're looking at. Um, they can sift through to a certain degree what is truth and what is lies. But I think another thing to throw into the mix of this conversation, which is often at the back of my mind, is what is the motive behind the story. What is the motive of that journalist, that young journalist who's going out there trying to make his or her name? Um, what is the motive when you have publishers, editors, all worrying about the bottom line, when circulation levels are falling, uh, there's such comp competition across the whole media landscape, and you have this fantastic arena now, free-flowing blogs, who are outside uh, the whole realm of regulation, uh, where there's a certain amount of self-policing that goes on, which is a different sphere altogether. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thought because, of course, journalism, journalists holding companies uh, or politicians to account expect transparency, mm. but are then not necessarily transparent about their own motives. Mm. Ian? Um, I, I think we, we're all assuming that everyone actually wants the truth, whereas, of course, that's not the case. People do want to read things that they actually know are made up. Why is the National Enquirer really popular in the States? Why are the Red Tops popular here on celebrity stories? We know a lot of it is, well, it may not all be made up, but there may be a scintilla of truth in the story somewhere, but most celebrity stories are not the truth. Um, I think the other point to raise is, is to pick up on what Julia said earlier about um, climate change, where we are all told that the debate on climate change is over, the argument is won. 
and yet people still question that seemingly obvious truth and people don't believe it. So they therefore go searching for evidence that it isn't. They therefore end up on the internet and I think the internet does play a big role here in enabling people to scrutinise what they're told is the truth in the mainstream media. So you have sites beginning that scrutinise what the likes of Polly Toynbee write every morning in The Guardian. And they go through the columns line by line to see, well, is that, is that the truth? And the columnists, of course, hate it because for the first time in many years, they are being held to account just as they're holding the politicians to account. I just want to dig a, a little deeper at the impacts that the, the web has had on, on journalism and truth and, um, and, and bring Paul and, and John back in, starting, starting with you, John, which is... Does it not frustrate you that the shape of truth has changed and that whereas 15, 20 years ago the truth would have been the truth about the Guildford Fall of the Birmingham Six, now it's the truth about Cheryl Cole's indiscretions with Ashley or otherwise? I mean, yeah, does that, does that really, really bug you as a journalist? It does, actually. Um, there's a great ocean of trivia. I have not stopped reading Sunday newspapers, but I certainly read fewer of them than I used to, and I never thought that would... Would, would happen. But look, uh, I mean, um, for those people who are genuinely interested in the truth, um, uh, the truth being uh, one that, as I say, uh, can withstand scrutiny, even if others don't agree with it, um, the ability to reach that, the best possible verdict of, the closest verdict to the truth, is much greater now because of the internet. I don't, I'm grateful to the internet. The internet presents you now with so many different points of view. It allows you to sift and weigh evidence and arguments to an extent that was never possible uh, before. Uh, so I go back to what I said. If you are a journalist who is genuinely curious about the way things actually are, uh, the internet has uh, done us a great service. It's really up to us, uh, if we're interested and in journalism, uh, to get at some sort of truth, uh, then uh, it's a very rich field out there. There's, um, there's a line in, uh, in Julia, or two lines in, in Julia's uh, revised book. It is better to have bad journalism than muffled journalism, but it's surely better to have responsible journalism. So, Paul, just putting you slightly on the spot here, the responsibility of some of the stuff that's in the blogosphere? Well, I'm not responsible for everything that's in the blogosphere. Oh, go on. And take nor should the PCCEB, by the way. <laughs> um, I, I am in pursuit of hidden truths. Uh, I do, I think, serious stories that hit the front pages regularly, and I do a lot of stuff because I realise I'm in the infotainment business. You know, there's a lot of fun stories that amuse, and I, I go by Kelvin McKenzie's uh, advice that, you know, you've got to either amuse them, anger them, or inform them. If you do one of those three things, gotcha. And that's what I want to do. But it doesn't take away from the fact that I always remember I've got to have an audience, a popular audience. And all that high-minded journalism, my readers aren't interested in the geopolitical situation in Iran. I'm not interested in it. They can go read Prospect for that. I mean, there's a diversity <laughs> of uh, uh, media out there, and there's an ecology, and I'm in a certain place in that, and I'm happy to be there. And I don't think I have any less respect for the people who work on The Sun than I do for the people who work on The Telegraph. So, in fact, in fact I think I'm right in saying that Order, Order was described as the bastard love child of Kelvin McKenzie and Popovich. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> um, in, a, in, a, in a free society, you are never going to get an agreement, however desirable 
responsible journalism may be, you are never going to establish a permanent agreement about what that is. D diversity and competition are parts of what we do. They're part of the ecology in which you operate. I think journalism inside that e ecology could do, as I said, with an e evolutionary boost because it is operating in very, very different circumstances. But it's never, ever going to operate under some kind of agreed set of rules about what's right or not. That just, uh, that, that's in controlled societies, that happens. And I think maybe this is what we're looking at. And I was going to ask Sue a, a similar question, following on from Ian's comments and, and, and from Paul's and yours, which is that, is this democratization of media actually democratizing truth and democratizing the media we consume? Yeah. Surely the biggest change that the web's made is the, is the right to journalism, is the rise of so-called citizen journalism. So in other words, journalists previously uh, had the monopoly or, or, or behaved as though they had the monopoly on the truth. And, uh, you, know, the, the, they, you know, they were the profession which was, which was delivering the truth to the public. Well, now, um, on the internet, the public is having its say back and the public is able to get at the truth just, just as well as we are, frankly. And actually, you know, to, to go back to, to surveys, but, but um, I think that, that surveys now, the research now shows that, that, that the public is more likely to trust other people, you know, uh, like themselves, um, other people's opinions, not necessarily so-called expert opinion, than they are likely to trust the likes of journalists and those who set themselves up in, in authority. I think that uh, I'm going that's to, thank you. I'm going to open it up for questions from the floor in one minute. I'm just going to ask Ian a supplementary on what Sue just said, because um, uh, he just tapped me and said he wants to say something. But I was going to ask him a question anyway, which is, in that context, who is best placed now to wield the trusty sword of truth? You know, is it the citizen? Is it the activist? Is it the polemicist? Um, or is it the media institution? <coughs> John says the BBC. Um, I, do. I, I think there's, there's a real problem now because um, on the internet you have a lot of effectively investigative journalism taking place, but it's also undermining the investigative journalism that people like John do in the mainstream media. I think within five or ten years you will see a dramatic decline in the resources that national newspapers and other media organisations are able to put into proper investigative journalism. The Sunday Times Insight team, I think, actually is already a shadow of its former self, but I suspect in five or ten years it won't even be there at all. Now, I regret that because there are things that, that cannot be done on the internet because individuals don't have the resources to do them. And I don't know what the solution to that is, but if, we're always, if we are seeking the truth and we find that the people like the Sunday Times Insight team, pro, the kind of programmes that John works on are not given priority any longer, I think we will all suffer from that and so will the truth. That is true. I totally agree with that. Questions from the, the floor, the audience? Anyone to raise their hand? Got one here in the middle. Two. Maybe take these first two together, the gentleman there and the gentleman in the front row. Great. Uh, yes, I'm uh, Stuart Lehman, um, and I'm a tax consultant. And the reason why I'm saying that will be apparent in my sort of sub-question. Uh, and it's a two-part question. Uh, first of all, to Baroness Buscombe. Do we need uh, to strengthen our privacy laws in the light of uh, the new sort of super injunction? Uh, and the sort of second part linked to that is really to John. I was just wondering why the Panorama program on uh, Lord Ashcroft was pulled uh, this week, uh, bearing in mind that a sort of snippets of it got into The Guardian. 
And gentlemen here. Yes, good morning. I'm Mark Emanuelson. Um, I think the, the, the discussion is very interesting around trust and also morality. When you look at trust, and if there's a decline in trust among the journalism industry, the industry really has its own selves to blame. And I find that um, media generally is, is very critical today in, in really pouncing on issues and not building confidence and trust in our institutions, politicians, businesses, and so forth. And that's probably then reflected back on the industry itself in the lack of trust. My question to the panel would be, looking at morality, what is the panel see as the role of journalism in helping the population to be educated about moral issues or morality or different sides um, and different populations that may need help or support today? Okay, um, there are a couple of specifics there. So if I can ask uh, Peter to comment on the question about privacy laws and super injunctions. John to be the apologist for Panorama on the pulling of the uh, Lord Ashcroft uh, story or otherwise. Uh, and then maybe bring other members of the panel in to ask how um, journalism, journalists can set a new moral compass for society. Um, uh, Peter. Yeah, um, as quickly as I can. I mean, first of all, quickly on super injunctions. Um, I'm not in favour of super injunctions, although there are occasions where you might think they make sense. I mean, one of the issues... Uh, the latest super injunction that we know about, the one uh, issued by Mrs. Justice Sharp, it sounds like there's um, a serious case of blackmail, um, and therefore she's seeking to make the whole um, situation sub judice using uh, a super injunction. Um, now, I, I'm not totally comfortable with that, but I certainly am not comfortable with beefing up privacy law. And I say this, not wearing my hat really as chairman of the Press Complaints Commission, more with my hat as a lawyer, knowing from my experience that state regulation, first of all, of the media, I think is fairly terrifying. Because, I mean, there's no question that um, uh, other parts of the media that are regulated by the state uh, have, you know, are much more uh, vulnerable in terms of undue pressure from, from governments, from opposition, and so on. Um, but also, law, legislation, it's slow to act, it's inflexible, it's expensive. Uh, and the reality is that when you apply self-regulation, you can, and we do at the Press Complaints Commission, shut down uh, the story. We can take stuff down, we can insist that newspapers take stuff down from the websites, that they shut down the story whilst we deliberate on whether or not there is an issue here in relation to privacy. We also stop stuff being printed where we get calls from potential complainants to say, somebody's called me, they're about to say something, it's simply wrong, it's not fair, it's not right. We can place calls and we do. We send out desist notices to editors to say, there's something here that doesn't sound right. We can't stop you publishing because we're not regulated as we were as, about, like the state, but it doesn't sound like a good idea and almost always they stop. Um, so, privacy law sounds a good idea, but sometimes it muffles stuff that really should be out there as well. I mean, if you look across Europe, um, just going back to that point about investigative journalism, I worry that state law, which beefs up privacy, will uh, help, well, that's the wrong word, but will lead to compromising further um, our ability to um, investigate, or journalism's, journalists' ability to investigate. Um, but also, it's too inflexible and it won't work. But given the amount of judge-made law in privacy, wouldn't you prefer a coherent version? I, I'm, I'm sort of 
very uneasy about this. And in fact, people think more and more people are going to the courts. Believe me, they're coming to us. Um, in relation to privacy, um, I think going forward, it's key that people turn to a flexible system where it's reactive responsive rather than an expensive system where the facts are laid bare and can be laid bare on a daily basis through the media, right up to that court case, right through that court case. The Max Mosley situation was a classic example where he should have come to the PCC. We may have upheld that case against the news of the world. I don't know. I'm one of 17. But we could have shut a lot down. I'm prepared to believe you have a better system. Um, but you can't compel people to come to it. And judges no, are making, are making, making a privacy law as we just sit there. Yeah, and, we, and I'm not. I'm, I'm saying I'm not in favour of that at no. all. I'm really not in favour of the happening. judges. Can I just bring Ian and, in with and, a question? And, and it's a law which only the rich can benefit from. And it's a law that I suspect half of the people in this room know the identity. And don't worry, I'm not going to say it. I know the identity of the three footballers who've got super injunctions out at yeah. the moment. Now, why is it that half the people in this room know that? It's because we belong to a media elite and the rest of the country don't. And there's something wrong with the system that allows that to happen. And I agree with that. I mean, I hope that's, you know, I do agree with that. And that's where, you know, beefing it up would make it even worse. Mm. In case anyone was worried about the note that was just passed to me and Julia, um, it was just to remind me to, to tell you that Julia's book is on sale um, <laughs> at the end of uh, at the end, and I will at the end remind you again that it's on sale at the bargain price of five pounds instead of twelve ninety nine. The funny thing is, it wasn't Julia that passed the note. <laughs> <laughs> um, John, just to come back on the question about Lord Ashcroft. Was this the mm. state interfering in journalism? The state? Yeah. Where did, where did, the, uh, where did the, where the, the request to pull the story come from? Lord Ashcroft. <laughs> um, well, look, I, I'm, I'm genuinely not, wasn't involved in the programme at all, haven't been, um, I, I'm not uh, intimately familiar with the details. Um, all, I, all I know is that um, uh, the BBC, uh, I'm sure, with plenty of notice, um, put a series of uh, questions to Lord Ashcroft. Um, uh, for some reason, um, Lord Ashcroft uh, produced uh, one, of, one of his responses, uh, caused the BBC, right at the last moment, uh, to review uh, the content of the programme. I genuinely don't know any more uh, about this particular matter than that. Um, but certainly there was no state involvement. I mean, this was a decision uh, taken uh, by the BBC for um, sensible reasons, no doubt. I mean, I, I don't think I can say anything more because, I mean, the, the, for all I know, it may, there may be continuing litigation. And I don't want to, Thank you. Um, the second I don't want question, to exacerbate that. The second question was about morality. I'd like to come back to, to Julia and Sue, if I may, and, and, and Peter raised this in, in her initial response. Um, obviously, the, the book on sale uh, for five pounds to my left um, is, uh, is not just about trust in, in media, but also about morality in media. And the, the question was, how can journalists and journalism help reshape morality? Well, one of the things that's interesting is that the heat is on journalism to prove its trustworthiness and its morality. And of course, four or five years ago, when the book was first published, the boot was on the other foot, and it was all about the pressure was on PR, and PR was spin and it was public relations and communication that was apparently corrupting you know, the moral sphere. 
And I think this is because journalism came late into the game contemplating its own navel. It did see itself fundamentally as all being, you know, men in, or women in raincoats on street corners with their little black book uncovering, you know, Watergate. And of course, a lot of journalism, particularly in these vastly deregulated media markets, are, are infotainment. And whilst there's nothing wrong with that, that's not necessarily putting truth first. So ironically, I think journalism has got itself into far greater difficulty than it needs to, because actually, I slightly agree with the view that journalism isn't there to be moral anyway. It's just there to be truthful and accurate and sincere, and therefore to allow its audiences to make up its own minds. So I'm all for journalism self-regulating, obviously, and pulling back from, you know, I think, uh, who was it that talked about, uh, I think it was John, um, who, uh, uh, Peter, you talked about the motive of yeah. journalists. I think that's a very good description. Um, you know, when we teach our children how to make choices and how not to lie or not to behave badly, you can't really legislate, you can't really punish them out of it. You, you guide them. Sue, and then I'm going to take a couple more questions. I think absolutely the problem is that the public doesn't trust uh, journalists' motives, uh, don't trust newspapers' motives, and there are very, they've got very good reasons not to do so. I think the problem, <laughs> the problem is, is that self-regulation is, is all very well, but as far as the public's concerned, uh, I think that um, it's perceived as not exactly, not exactly a joke, but... but um, let's say, you know, an industry like, like, um, like journalism, which is, which is um, supposed to, to regulate itself, isn't really seen to be doing so. The PCC, of which I'm a fan, is seen as quite toothless, unfortunately. How do we get past it? I think it's, ex I think it's ex extremely difficult. Um, I think that we need possibly to, you know, to find a, a different way of, of, of going about this. And I but Sue, you're very keen on polls. Can mm. I tell you, uh, we do polling on the PCC, and our polling shows an extraordinary, first of all, extraordinary awareness, which really you know, be, is encouraging of the PCC, but also um, an extraordinary degree of trust in what we do and our system. And something like 77% of people say they prefer our system because it's fast, it's free, and they'd much rather have a quick apology and get that newspaper sorted uh, than, than the slow and expensive process of going to law. Uh, and remember, too, we have, thing, we have sanctions. I mean, some people lose their jobs uh, on the basis of an upheld complaint by the PCC. So, you know, this toothless thing is, is getting a bit boring. Uh, it, it's simply not, it's not fair to, to call it that. Um, we've got a, a lady at the front. I'm Lucy Huberman. I'm professor of digital media at the University of Warwick. Um, like Julia, I'm very interested in what she describes as the nuanced truth, or I might call it the constructed truth, having been a documentary filmmaker and commissioner of television before I moved to a university. Um, I think we could have a whole other seminar on where truth lies in polling and polls. So um, I, I have lots to say about that, but I won't take it up now. Um, what I'm interested in is... Uh, 
panel's view on going a bit deeper into how the internet has changed reporting and journalism. And where there are nuances is, for example, um, how the digital content of the press is regulated. And also, when newspapers publish screenshots, photos, quotes, blogs uh, on their pages, is that counting still as digital content? Is it ever sourced? Is the provenance of the sources checked? And I'm not against the blogosphere. I helped the BBC launch into the blog space. I'm interested in the behavior of the press. Um, I have professional, and I should disclose some personal reason to be interested. Well, okay, before, John, do you want to comment on that? And, and maybe, John and Peach, do you want to quickly come whilst we get the microphone to a couple of rows back where there are two questions? John, do you want to go first on that? The, the, question, the question is how the internet has changed journalism specifically around double sourcing or lack thereof, I suppose. And then digital. And then um, digital. You mean, do, do we simply recycle, regurgitate stuff um, from the internet? Is that really the point? Uh, yeah. Well, we shouldn't do. Uh, we should never take anything uh, at face value. Uh, obviously, on sourcing, there's a simple rule. Uh, I mean, if the, it depends, the test of any source is whether uh, the source is in a position to know what he or she has told you. If the uh, cabinet secretary, uh, if you're lucky enough to have the cabinet secretary <laughs> telephoning you saying the prime minister is, um, I don't know, um, a member of al-Qaeda or something, uh, you're likely to take that very seriously. Would you take the cabinet secretary's word for it? Uh, no, um, it's such an astonishing thing uh, to say that you'd probably want to double source it. But, you know, it all depends on, on what the source is. I wouldn't take a source off the internet and re recycle it uh, without um, seeing who it was, assessing whether they were in a position to know what they said. I think there is a lot of regurgitation. Um, David Lee has famously pronounced on journalism. I think David's got a very good point uh, uh, about that. Uh, but at the same time, I say again, I welcome the internet. I think it's a tremendously rich source of uh, other opinions and facts which are there to be mined uh, selectively, carefully. Uh, it's better to know things, uh, um, even if they're wrong, uh, than not know anything at all. Can, can I give a concrete example of, of this? Um, remember the evening David Laws resigned from the Cabinet back in May? Um, I was actually in the BBC newsroom about to do something on uh, the news channel, and I learned that he was about to resign. Um, now, I considered the source that I had reasonable, so I put it on my Twitter feed, did a short blog post about it, and I said to the news editor, I said, have you heard this? David Laws is about to resign. It sent the entire BBC newsroom into blind panic. It took them an hour and a quarter to stand that up and get a second source. They would not put that on air until they actually had that second source. Right well, I'm not saying it isn't quite right, but... I, as a blogger, was quite happy to rely on that single source because I knew that it was, well, I hoped that it was accurate. I did slightly panic when it took the BBC an hour and a quarter. Yeah, but, we, I, I, we, I want but, but, but can I just make, I mean, I assume, I don't know whether you shared the source with the BBC newsroom. Presumably you, you didn't. That's <laughs> not good journalism. Exactly. So uh, the BBC, I mean, good for you. you. You know, you were right, but, but there's no way the BBC should have simply recycled no, I'm, that. I'm, I'm not saying the source. What, no, got, no, but I'm just saying that's the difference. There, there, there's an interesting dynamic there, of course, that Ian would himself become a source, and therefore it would be a double source. <laughs> I, I, I know Peter's anxious to comment, but, but I suspect Paul has a point to be honest as well. Quick, quick, no, um, 
I asked my assistant if he double sourced the story just recently. He said, yes, I called him twice. <laughs> yeah, but here we're seeing a very clear example of the difference between the regulated world and the unregulated world. I just wanted to clarify that all magazine and newspaper, um, newspaper websites are regulated by the PCC. Um, blogs that are uh, directly attached, as it were, and part of a, of a, a newspaper or magazine website um, are regulated, but nothing outside that sphere. There's a clear demarcation upon which we do not go, beyond which we do I not just, go. Robert, can I just say, I mean, I do think the BBC has one hell of a problem if it takes an hour and a half to stand up a story that can go out into the blogosphere. I mean, mm -hmm. yesterday at 20 to 5, I checked orderorder.com and saw the David Miliband resignation statement. I immediately went on to the BBC, the Guardian, the... Uh, mainstream media websites, no sign, no sign, no sign. There was a lot of grumbling that perhaps Guido had broken an embargo, but he didn't source that story under embargo. And actually, you know, the mainstream media needs to keep up. Yeah. It's ridiculous, the idea that the BBC can't get a story in under an hour and a half that's out there. That's just not right. But actually, can I just say, I think, I think that the David Miliband story is a really good example of, of what we're talking about here with truth, because a friend of mine was just, we were just talking on the way in, and um, from what we read in the press, do we, you know, the Milibands, do they love each other, do they hate each other, are they having a row about it, are they not having a row about it? <laughs> We don't know, do we? We absolutely have no idea what the truth is here. Perhaps the people on this panel do know the truth if they happen to know the Millibands, because we have privileged access, because we're journalists. Uh, you know, the public out there can re has no idea about where the truth lies on this particular one. I think it's a fantastic example. Before, before the close, I will take a vote on whether to interpret the information that's available, uh, and in some sense, uh, to create the truths that reflect the world uh, as it is and the way that we want it to be because listening to the panel I can get a feeling of a kind of a, a sense of crisis that is more uh, in here in the world of journalism than it is necessarily out there um, by that I mean the internet we are told every year is speeding up for the last 25 years it gets faster and faster uh, but the world is still out there maybe what's changing is our confidence uh, to make sense of it um, and the, the real danger is that you start to uh, have the conversation we just heard is how fast can we get the truth of uh, David Miliband's resignation onto uh, an internet site. That's not actually the truth. Right? That may be a fact about the world, but I think we should have the confidence to um, aspire to a bit more than that. And the business of journalism shouldn't be uh, one of holding Polly Toynbee to account because she got a fact wrong. Uh, but rather standing up and having an argument with her if you disagree with her point. And those are some of the distinctions I think we need to bear in mind when we talk the, about the, this the, crisis. The, the fact of the matter is that 10, 15 years ago, no one was able to stand up with yeah. Polly Toynbee and have that exactly. argument exactly. because they had no access to do that. Mm. We have become a less deferential society. We question more. We want more information. And we go to many more different sources to find that information. And if, if, if I, as a blogger, let my readers down and get something wrong, they will lose trust in me and they will go somewhere else to find the truth or find, find uh, an interpretation of an event. Can I just, uh, George, who of course is a professor of journalism, wants to comment on that. I just, I just wanted to underline the importance of sense-making, the difference between facts and truth, if you like. You're absolutely right, sorry, I can't see you directly, but you're absolutely right to underline this point. 
And really, John made it in another version earlier when he said that the business of journalism is to build up a case which stands up against scrutiny. The business of journalism is not the transmission or the harvesting of facts. Um, it is making a picture which people, on which people can act. I'm using a phrase from Walter Lippmann in the 1920s. Um, and therefore, it is, and what distinguishes it, or should distinguish it, is the systematic attempt to establish the truth, but you are also sense-making at the same time. And general, the defenses of journalism, which attempt to fail to admit that judgment is involved in putting the facts together, make a very poor defense for journalism. Um, Claire Fox, uh, Ian, I don't think you need to be uh, defensive, by the way, because I don't think this is a row between blogs and journalism. I, I'm assuming that journalism happens in blogs, some at least, and uh, some journalists do journalism, some don't. So I don't think we have to have that counterposition. What I wanted to ask was whether anybody really thought that what The Telegraph did was investigative journalism. Um, it struck me that they just published something that they got access to. And is that, in fact, uh, John had uh, raised a question about um, curiosity. I, I would argue that one of the crises is not enough curiosity. It strikes me that people aren't asking enough questions. Um, and the questions they're asking are very narrow, very technical. And we know that we live in a world that has a range of orthodoxies that you're not meant to question. And instead of journalism puncturing those orthodoxies, it strikes me they become the designers of them and the protectors of them. And you made the point about climate change, Ian. I mean, that's one of a, a perfectly good example where journalism has almost been at the forefront of campaigning to not allow the questions to take place. So what I would suggest is a crisis of journalism on or offline is that people have lost a sharp sense of curiosity about asking difficult questions beyond the Westminster village and beyond the orthodoxies. I think you've lost your nerve as a journalistic profession, to be entirely frank. So, so, so if, I'm, if I can just paraphrase that, journalism has lost its curiosity. Is that well, the... I, think, I, I do think that. I, think, uh, I agree with a lot of what Claire says. I think, uh, I think um, I'm afraid to say, I think that broadcasting, uh, uh, to some degree, uh, has lost its uh, nerve, uh, actually, in that sense. Um, <laughs> We uh, don't do very much sort of subversive stuff now, if you know what I mean. I mean, sort of respectable subversive stuff. We don't. We, 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 the BBC, I think, was very late uh, uh, off the block on uh, immigration, as a matter of fact. We reported uh, statistics and all the rest of it. We never actually sort of tried to work out whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, which bits of it were good, which bits of it were bad. We never, we didn't do enough explaining. We didn't, uh, I think we do now, but I think we were very late. The Daily Mail was leading that story. Uh, some of it was pretty tendentious, but on the other hand, some of it, it was perfectly justifiable. So I do think the BBC has um, ceded some subversive ground in pursuit of... Uh, Political correctness? Yes, absolutely, to a degree. But also channel performance. I mean, channel performance is key. You know, uh, you know audience, channel performance has become an increasingly um, dominant force and decides what does and doesn't go on the main channel. I've, I think that's regrettable in some cases. We've, um, we've got enough material here to go on for hours. Um, I've got about 10 minutes, I think, 10, 15 minutes left to run. Um, the panel will want to ask questions of the audience and of one another. Um, there's a gentleman over there who's been 
very politely, like the best boy in school, holding his hand out for a long time. So I think we ought to give him a shot, and then we could just pass the microphone to the back, and then I'm going to ask a question, and then we'll begin to wrap up. Matthew Halliday, Background Reinsurance. Cardinal John Henry Newman said, before you go into theology, go and look at the arts, go and look at the pictures, go and look at the theatre. When the Pope came here, we were fascinated as to how the media handled this, because, if I may be allowed to suggest, his great message was warning about the spirit of the issues of which you were talking about. So, for example, the media seems to spend 30% of their time covering the scandals, which need to be reported. But there were huge, great, legitimate issues about who Newman was and why he was here, and what that lady was talking about there, that on the basis of legitimacy, needed to be brought out into the open. And they weren't, because your entire media machine was totally wrapped up in its own cogwheels, pursuing scandals to report stories. And whether or not you agree with religion, and religion should never be fostered on anyone, there were very important issues there. So someone said to me the other day, we've got the best media in the world. And I said, no. I said, we have the worst media in the world, but we have among the finest journalists, the finest journalists. So coming to the Olympics, what sort of image do you think you want us to have? John, Paul, any thought? Did you blog about the Pope? I did. I thought there was a sort of orgy of Pope bashing going on. Um, got a whole load of new Twitter fans out of that, some of them twittering me in Latin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little. Ad meorium de glorium. Um, the, the, the Pope's visit was, you could see the worldview of the BBC come out very clearly, and the Guardian and all those, all those pretenses to impartiality. They're not impartial if you're a conservative Catholic, are they? And, and that's earlier when we were talking about moral judgments, there aren't enough moral judgments in the, in the media. We don't say, you know, they make a point of pride that it's not going to make moral judgments in most of the sort of left press. I think it's a bad thing to not be married and have children. But that is just completely unacceptable to say that about... Um, uh, Ed Miliband, and you know, it, it became almost a, a point that the Daily Mail was abusing him in some way for pointing out a fact. I never thought I'd see the day when we were lectured on morality by Paul. <laughs> on, the, on the point about um, Britain having the worst media but the finest journalists, and uh, George, you were going to ask to come back on Ian's point about the role of investigative journalism. Well, uh, but, but let me just address that quickly to start with. Uh, I don't really think you can, you can ha I mean, I don't think your, your formulation makes sense. And more to the point, I absolutely disagree with you about the reporting of the Pope's visit, which I actually thought was really quite good. I, I mean, I declare an interest, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I was, I think it's a, a papal visit is a very interesting test of news media because it's big ideas, it's an unfamiliar subject for most journalists, and at the same time, there was a rolling news story boiling alongside the sexual abuse scandals. It seemed to me that actually, and I looked fairly carefully at the coverage as a whole, from about as disinterested a perspective religiously as you could get, and I actually thought that buried in there, if you can find it, was some really extremely good reporting. It was an, or an original, freshly done, calmly done. You had to look for it, but then in today's media ecology, you have to do that. Now, I wanted to pick up an unanswered question of Ian's about investigative journalism. I mean, he was saying, you know, it's in danger. I'm a, I mean, with a num number of notable exceptions, John's work, for example, I'm afraid, news for Ian here, investigative journalism is already in decline. The decline has already happened. Um, but if inst journalism institutions aren't going to survive the vast economic, cultural, social changes that have been driven, then new institutions are going to have to be grown. Um, sorry, tiny 
example here, we host at City University a thing called the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. It supplied most of the raw material for an edition of Panorama the other day. It was about public, public service salaries. Therefore, there is renewal going on. It's going on under the surface. It's very granular. It's very small. But it is happening. Can I jump in? To answer the gentleman over there, just regarding the Pope's visit, I think that it's important to distinguish the old-fashioned you know, difference between comment and reporting. The comment about the Pope, particularly in the, in the run-up to his visit, I agree with you. That I read more negative than positive comment. The reporting of the Pope's visit, however, was, was almost universally positive, both on broadcasting and in print, and I completely agree with George on that. I do think there is still a distinction between, between reporting and comment. I think we should try and hang, hang on to that. Any fans of Stargate, you wonder what's happening? I don't think this gentleman would disagree with either of you. I think what you were saying, if I may, is there was some, some reasoning, the motive behind why the Pope came. Some of that story <laughs> didn't come out, or maybe this gentleman knows more about where the truth lies. Uh, than, than the rest of us. I think also another important factor in all of this is, of course, the huge difference between broadcast journalism and print is you guys in the broadcast arena are supposed to be impartial, and the print media can be partial. And I think in, in many ways people look upon blogs, for example, as being quite a healthy counterbalance to political correctness and this incredible constraint that the BBC has on an ongoing basis in terms of that thing, we have to be partial. So, before the Pope arrived, there were a great number of stories across the BBC and elsewhere about all the negatives about the Pope. It was clear to me the moment when someone was ticking off the BBC for being too partial, whoops, suddenly we have impartiality. As soon as the Pope arrives, it's all the guy is golden. You know, it, I thought that was quite, quite pronounced. I'd like to um, quickly move on from the Pope to William Hague, um, uh, because one of the things that we haven't looked at um, is how the recipient of this new truth um, uh, deals with it. So the question I'd like to very quickly, and if, if the panel could just literally give a snap thought on it, but Paul may be allowed one second longer. Um, was William Hague right to tell the truth in his way about his and Fionn's personal life? Was he forced to do that by this new morality that we've, we've talked about? John. I, I uh, don't give a toss whether... Uh, sorry, she's a rather unfortunate... I don't care whether uh, um, <laughs> William Hague uh, is sleeping in the same room as a young male aide. Um, I suppose I should care uh, if he's being paid for public, out of public funds and was appointed uh, for some reason other than his ability. Uh, we don't know what the reason for the appointment was, but I think there are incredibly, you know, many more important things to worry about than that. Uh, but I uh, defend Guido's right to break the story. I just don't care about it very much. I don't think many people care my, my, about my it question, very much. My question, I get Julia's perspective, my question is slightly different, right. which was that the way that Haig was forced to tell the truth as he saw it in order to... I think that was a... I think I felt very sorry for him, actually. On a personal basis, I felt very, very sorry for him. Julia? Well, it was such a milestone by that point, and I think there is an interesting parallel with the Pope, you see, because the Pope's visit wasn't just about 
state visits and Roman Catholicism and faith, it was also about the other story, which is the child abuse in the Catholic Church. And so those two issues clashed, really, and I think there was generally a, genuinely a moral dilemma in the news about how to both treat with respect a papal visit, but also... And I think in the case of William Hague, you had a reasonably similar issue, which is, on the one hand, the public clearly do not care about alleged actual, probable, improbable homosexuality or something akin to it. However, what the story was, was the story that the public do seem to care about, which is expenses related, abuse of power stuff. And therefore, I thought by the time the Foreign Secretary began what was ultimately a very personal comment about his identity, it, it it felt like whatever he did was not going to be adequate or appropriate um, because it was caught so much in the crosshairs of so much else. So, so the question to Paul, is this the new morality that the new journalism has shaped? Hold on, you're changing the question. The first no, thing no, I'm moving it on. Okay, well... Uh, <laughs> but you can I'll, answer both. I'll, I'll answer the first one. I think he panicked um, with good reason and I also think that uh, people should realise in six years of publishing the blog, I have never outed a single politician. That's a point that should be borne in mind. Given that I, I know more about the sex size of politicians than I care to remember, I think, you know, in my defence, that's a very valid point. That story came about because of the appointment of Christopher Myers. Now, if that had been Christine and she'd been heterosexual, he'd be out of a job. Because he's Christopher and homosexual, we're not talking about it. Ian. Well, what was the story? The story was reported as William Hague sharing a room with someone. Now, the clear insinuation there was, oh, well, if he shared a room with someone, then he must be having sex with them. Well, I suspect most of the people in this room have shared a room with someone and not had sex with them if they're of the same sex. So that was what I took issue with because there was a clear insinuation without a shred of evidence. And so I didn't feel that was enough of a story to report. Now, if it, if, if it had been true and you had some evidence of that, fair enough. Now, he had no alternative but to make that statement because the mistake that was made was the Foreign Office put out this two-line statement, I think, on the Tuesday evening, and that therefore gave everyone else the excuse to cover it, and it mushroomed from there. So he had absolutely no alternative but to do so. Can I just correct something that someone's just Twittered? Paul Rayburn, whoever you are, has, says... I have said I only need one source. I needed one source on that David Laws story. I'm not saying I go with every story with one source. I just want to clarify that. One last question, lady just there at the back, and then I'm going to begin to wrap it up. Sophie Gunter, um, I work with Editorial Intelligence. Before internet, you could truthfully be said that today's tittle-tattle and gossip was wrapping uh, tomorrow's fish and chips. That is no longer the case. Today's tittle-tattle and defamatory slander, in some cases, it's with everybody forever with Google, never goes away. So I would just like to, I'm sort of directing this at Guido, to everybody, it's both uh, journalists across the spectrum. Is there not now more of a responsibility to not um, damage people's reputations? If I can maybe morph that into the wrap-up question and ask literally each of the panellists, um, and I'll just go from left through to, to right, starting with John. Um, what have we learned? I mean, in the, in, the, in the past hour or so, there's been talk of journalism in crisis, that we've lost our curiosity, that we're less subversive, but to George's point, that renewal is underway. 
Um, Ian made the point, I think, absolutely right, that we've seen the death of deference, the end of the media elite, which is changing the shape of what we do. We obviously have got the rise of transparency and new institutions that are, that are coming to the fore, and to a point that Sue made, the rise of the citizen, which I just a little plug is in my essay in Julia's book. Um, but just to this point about Google never forgets. Um, what is the responsibility now of the media in this new landscape? And if we could just wrap it up on, on the, those The points. responsibility of the media is not to put material uh, into newspapers or the airways or, or, or the internet unless you can stand over it. I mean, that has always been a, uh, the principle which uh, underlies everything you transmit and... Uh, in my, in my view. I, I, can I just make a point that I, George, I think, made a very important point, in fact, so, so is Ian, that there is a real crisis. I don't think the crisis is of trivia. I mean, uh, you know, you, you've got a choice in the matter. The real crisis for me is the funding. We have got to find a new funding model. Uh, if you want to call it investigative journalism, I, I call it journalism that, you know, discloses, you know, sort of, uh, you know, new, new and important things, that does take vast sums of money. It eats up lawyers' fees. It, the, the burden on, you know, getting, getting it right is greater than ever, certainly in the BBC. The oversight system, I'm not complaining about it, I think it's a good thing, I think it helps to keep us honest, but I can tell you that, it, that, that the BBC's complaints procedure is not some walkover. They go through everything with a tooth comb. It is like having to tip up your whole computer to them when a serious complaint comes in. I'm not complaining about that. I, as I say, I think it does help keep us honest. But it does mean uh, that it costs even more money than it ever cost. To that extent, journalism, I think, is in crisis. And I personally commend the Times for charging uh, on the internet because I think that's the only way. Newspapers like The Guardian, who've done some tremendous work, the, we would never have known the, about the expenses but for the Daily Telegraph, the Barclay Brothers shelling out whatever it was, £100,000. It was good value for money, in my view. So, you know, we have got to think about a new economic model if you want... Uh, important journalism, without telling time too uh, sort of uh, pompous about it, uh, not to be overtaken by a sea of trivia. Ian. I think we've got to get away from calling the media the media because it's all sorts of different component parts. I don't want the Daily Star or Sunday Sport to be particularly responsible. They do what they do. I don't want Guido to be responsible all the time because I won't read him if he is. But on the other hand, if I run my LBC phone-in show on the basis of the Daily Star, yeah, I mean, the, the, the listenership might go up. But, and, and I know that I can press particular buttons by the subjects I choose for the phone-ins on that show. But if I do immigration every night, if I do speed cameras every night, am I being responsible? And I think in that form of media, there is a responsibility to be responsible. Paul? I don't know if it's my responsibility, but it's my intention to uh, tell the truth about the powerful and have some fun on the way. Peter. Well, I, I guess in this fast-moving world, I've already said, uh, and I'll just repeat quickly, that I think the, the, the answer in terms of um, redress, the lady was asking about what do we do about websites, you know, something about us is there forever. Come to the PCC, use us, because we are the, the place that, in terms of the press that you can come to, and magazine industry, um, where we can, we can act, we can get stuff taken down. Um, it is a rich world that we live in, in terms of, of, of global media. We're not, we haven't talked today about you know, the fact that 
what we could be discussing here could be listened to uh, overnight now in Australia. Um, you know, it's an amazing world, but a degree of responsibility is really important. I would say, yes, we are in an age of transparency, which is terrific, but transparency demands accountability, and that's where we come in. George? Uh, media, the media isn't journalism. Journalism isn't the media. Journalism's duty to the truth, it seems to me, is to make a systematic attempt to establish it in what matters to the society. It's not its job to protect people's reputations necessarily, although it should always do that within the law, for example, the law of defamation, just to address Sophie's question. It isn't the job of journalism to create trust in society. It is the job to establish what is going on. That's quite hard enough, and quite enough goes wrong. That should be keeping us busy. I'm going to actually skip this last, reverse the order of the last two, as Julia is the authoress here, and it's her book launch. Uh, celebrated. So Sue and then Julia to have the final comment. We've got to absolutely tell the truth and keep telling the truth and I think we have to find better ways somehow to make the public believe us and trust us and I think that's, that perhaps the way to do that is to engage, engage the public more in this debate and to find ways of doing that. And then finally Julia. I think it's great we're all so interested in this subject. I think it's about a cultural change that is happening and will happen more. It's about the values that people place on things. I think that people place a value on trusting information. We are all those of us in, we are in the communications business, whether we are broadcasters or bloggers or writers or PR people or journalists or whatever. And the business of communication needs to know that it will ultimately be devalued if it doesn't have integrity and those Bernard Williams qualities of sincerity and accuracy and the best guess in between. So on that note of um, integrity, sincerity and accuracy, um, a few final thanks. Thanks to um, Editorial Intelligence, obviously for hosting, to City University of Journalism and to the CSIS Club here in the Gherkin. And finally, um, thank you to the panel for um, participating in what I hope has been an illuminating discussion. Thanks very much. Thank